So, welcome to the food factory. Thank you. Future food factory. Ola just went and fetched a glass jar filled with dried mealworms. Please have a snack. Right. <laughs> so they're about uh, two, three centimeters long. Yes. Brownish. Yes. Yep. Take more than one so they mm. can really. Think, think of it as a wine tasting or a <laughs> popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, quite neutral. Yeah, yeah I, I like them. It's, it's easily incorporated, I would say. And I think that um, the f- chefs of, of the future really have a new source here to, to explore. Welcome back to Meet the Four Futures. Presented by Table. I'm Matthew Kessler, and I'm excited to share a bonus episode with you today. We've been wanting to take a closer look at insects this whole series, but we weren't exactly sure where to place it in our four futures. Efficient meat, alternative meat, less meat, or no meat? Is it a meat alternative? Insects, after all, are a source of protein that are cultivated indoors that aim to replace some of the global demand for meat. But it could also be efficient meat. You're growing trillions of these incredibly tiny livestock in close quarters. Or even less meat, as insects are well suited to recycle or upcycle waste streams from industrial byproducts and turn them into a nutritious food source. Or a plant-based food. No, just kidding. They're definitely not plants. Actually, they might be a lot smarter than you ever thought. If you give them a tiny little ball, they will play with it and seem to just do that out of fun. In this episode, we'll visit a millworm factory in Sweden to better understand their circular production. And we speak to researchers in the Netherlands and Ethiopia about the environmental advantages and ethics of farming and eating insects. And while they're already eaten in many parts of the world, often as a snack, Will we see this production scale up in the future? And will people replace some of the meat portion of their diets with insects? I just fail to see what question insects are answering that plants can also answer. This move currently on the African continent to develop a continental insect strategy. And so, yeah, I think it's an area that requires attention. If you're only joining us now and you haven't listened to the whole series, you can hear the rest at our website, tabledebates.org slash meet. In episode four, Alternative Meat, Utopia or Dystopia, we talked about the different meat alternatives that are on the market now, like meat substitutes made from plants and from fungi. We also talked about the futuristic alternative meats that are actually grown from animal cells, which as of 2023, are only available in some restaurants and markets in Singapore and in incredibly select restaurants for tastings. While cultivated meat from animal sales gets a ton of attention, we may not actually see them widely distributed and available in grocery stores and markets for years or even decades to come. Which is why we want to bring your attention to a meat alternative that can be found in some stores and markets today. You can find versions of it grounded to burger patties, into meatballs, and in protein bars. But all these foods are meant to disguise what we're actually talking about, 
which is insects. You know, crickets, mealworms, grasshoppers. To get a better sense of what it's like to farm insects, we're going to first hear from my colleague from the Future Food at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Ilva Kralkas Varnborg takes you behind the scenes of a factory growing these insects in Sweden. In central Sweden, just outside the small town of Usha, there's a company transforming from a startup to a scale-up. Not as drastic a transformation as the products do themselves, transforming from eggs to larvae. This is next week's harvest, so they are almost full-grown. Nils Österström is the CEO and co-founder of the company Tebrito, producing mealworms. They are well-researched for nutritional value, they are domestic insects and easily digested by humans. Inside the factory facility, in different rooms, are stacks and stacks of blue plastic trays, well-organized with eggs, worms and beetles. And here we have the beetles that lays eggs, new starting culture for, for another batch of mealworms. All insects neatly in place in the trays, from where they have no reason to escape, embedded as they are in wheat hull, food they love. And they're in a warm and humid environment. Yes, they have a fantastic life. They are in the perfect spot with a very good environment, no birds, and surrounded with the things that they like the most. As a child, Nils wanted to become an inventor of important things, and he feels he almost got there, setting up today's and tomorrow's protein production in a world he thinks can't increase its meat production, although the world population is growing. By 2050, he estimates that around 4% of the world's protein consumption will come from different insects. And uh, that means 37 million tons of insects consumed over the world. We don't have more fields, we have uh, no more seas available, so we have to do things more efficiently. And the insects is a very, very good solution on that. We have the same quality in, in terms of amino acid, like the protein quality, with a fraction of the greenhouse gas emission. We use uh, side streams from, from the food industry and the agriculture industry and make it more efficient. So with no more fields and no more seas, insects, and in this case mealworms, seem a perfect solution when speaking with Nils and his colleague Ola Broström research and development manager, as well as sales manager. Uh, my biggest concern uh, is actually to deliver the requested volumes uh, needed and asked for, because we have higher interest and more customers than we can serve. Uh, and because it is a living organism and it has a, a circle of, of uh, population and, and uh, growing, uh, it takes time to increase the volumes. You can't really just build a factory and then, boom, it's there. So you have to actually grow it. Um, so that, that's a main obstacle, but nothing really to do about it. From the outside, this factory building says nothing about what's happening inside. And there is plenty of room to expand, which will be necessary if their plan of exponential growth of the production will succeed. 
Sometimes you say that what you eat says a lot about who you are and what your values are and so on. So what does it say about a person who is into eating mealworms? Uh, first of all, you, uh, you like good, good tasting food. And then that you're also concerned and uh, enlightened about your surrounding and the, the global situation. Uh, that you make an active choice to choose what kind of food source you're actually into so that you maybe have a most part of your your diet is vegetarian then you have some part fish and some part meat and then you add some part of insect based product i think it signals that you are aware of where the, uh, the world is going you should also know that in the world 2.6 billion people thinks insects are just ordinary food and that that's also one key thing to remember that this is no nothing strange for for very many people to fill the gap between today's and tomorrow's demand for protein they believe they provide a solution we can provide proper nice ingredients to the to the food industry whoever wants to to be a part of, of our insect revolution. It's a, quite as a wave. It will flood over you. Everybody will be a part of it in some way. Everybody will end up having an opinion. That was Ilva Kroquis Varnborg reporting at Tabrito at their factory in Orsha, Sweden. Tabrito is currently exploring collaborations with other companies, including meat producers, to blend flour from the ground mealworms with the minced meat. They want to be part of the answer to the question, how do we decrease global livestock production? While many in the global north view insects as a novelty food that could solve many problems, insects have long been seen in the global south as an established protein source that comes with a lot of benefits well-known to Namakolakovich from Zambia, the International Livestock Research Institute's Director General's representative to Ethiopia. I was visiting in the Netherlands, one of the universities, and they were having a trial. Somebody had done a study on insects and, and people were tasting. And I watched people contorting their faces, trying to accept the taste of this thing. And I thought to myself, why is this research happening here? Because, I mean, we have settings where people will actually consume those things with a smile on their faces. I mean, I tasted some very happily. I mean, literally, I asked them if I could have a handful. Do you think the Global North shouldn't be doing research on insects as a source of protein? No, they should. Uh, I don't think it's a question of them not doing it, but I would like to see that also happening in the global south because the potential for growth, because there is already a taste for it, is that much greater. There's move currently on the, con- on the African continent to develop a continental insect strategy. And so, yeah, I think <laughs> it's an area that I think requires attention because of all the different benefits that it can bring. Currently, they are looking at three things. One is insects for food. Two is insects like blowfly larvae as a protein supplement for poultry feed. And the, the third is growing these insects using organic waste 
and then producing organic manure from it. So it's addressing different perspectives of, of the food system, if you will. So yeah, it's an area of interest. That's Namakolakovich from the International Livestock Research Institute, who reminds us that this quote novel food that might be destined to become a new food commodity is just an everyday food for many in Africa. Insects across the world could hold a lot of promise for food systems. They're nutritious, they're an efficient animal feed to replace the imported soybeans that are fed to chickens, and they can be used as a sustainable fertilizer. But not everyone is on board with the insect revolution. I just fail to see what question insects are answering that plants can't also answer. Jonas House is a researcher at Wageningen University in the Netherlands who examines the social and cultural factors that bring people to change their diets. And he's skeptical about the role insects will play in the future for a few reasons. Foods often travel because they sort of move with people as people move and become established in, in new places. And as far as I know, there doesn't seem to be a sort of insect-based cuisine that's traveled with people. For the people who have migrated to different countries and brought part of their food culture with them, insects weren't really at the top of the list. Insects aren't really a core part of cuisines in many places. They're often eaten seasonally when there's a lot of them around. They're often a snack. So people might be eating insects in the hot summer months or the rainy season for a crunchy snack, but they aren't often replacing meat, nor are they typically consumed as a staple part of people's diets. But there are some other barriers for people who aren't familiar with eating insects. Like, they aren't being prepared in ways that make them exciting, tasty, and distinctive to eat. And we haven't mentioned maybe the most obvious reason. Many people see insects as gross. Disgusting. But Jonas House isn't convinced that you can't overcome this way of thinking. I've been quite critical of this idea of the yuck factor, because I think that humans can learn to eat more or less anything. And, you know, a good example, I suppose, is sushi contains ingredients that were culturally unusual in the U.S. Uh, up until around the 1960s. Right. I bet U.S. investors weren't putting their money into raw fish restaurants produced by Japanese Americans not long after World War II. But now, decades later, you can visit most towns across the United States and find a place to eat sushi. Jonas documents this fascinating history in his article called Sushi in the United States, 1945 to 1970. In a more recent article, called Insects Are Not the New Sushi, he argues that the cultures and practices around eating food make the pathways for insects to become more mainstream very unlikely, even with savvy marketing. Jonas House boils it down to a simple question. What are insects' unique selling point? I don't really see how they can compete with plant-based sources of protein, which are cheaper more abundant, don't require specialist facilities, don't have the yuck factor associated with them. And there's one other consideration that Jonas wonders about. When people try eating insects for the first time, are they becoming converted insect eaters? Or were they just trying them for novelty reasons? Are people willing to try it once? Or is it going to be routinely consumed? So the majority of insect food consumer research focuses on sort of willingness to eat, willingness to pay. Would you eat this insect or this something else? 
which is fine, but it only applies to that single time. It doesn't look at, doesn't account for, would somebody pick this in a supermarket if it was surrounded by the potential foods? And that's a much bigger issue. Ultimately, Jonas imagines a far less ambitious role for insects in feeding future humans. I think they'll probably remain a niche interest in protein bars and hypoallergenic pet food and things like that. Jonas House, researcher at Wageningen University. So we've heard from a mealworm factory in Sweden showing the promise of insects as a more environmentally friendly alternative to meat. We heard a call to do more research on insects in Africa, where there's a larger possibility to scale production. And Jonas House shared his skepticism about insects ever becoming a main part of anyone's diet in the future. To close this episode out, we explore one other consideration. From an ethical perspective, should we be eating insects? Yeah, that's very hard to just answer with a yes or no. That's animal and environmental ethicist Bernice Bovenkirk from Wageningen University, who you may recognize from episode 7. Only quite recently animal ethicists have turned towards insects and start wondering, well, do insects also have a welfare? Can they suffer? And it's just, it's very difficult. It very much depends on not just your ethical theory, but also on your theory of mind and your cognition theory. Most animal ethicists say that if animals can suffer and feel pain, it's not ethical to eat them when alternatives exist. When it comes to insects, some theories state that insects are conscious, but it's not clear whether they are phenomenally conscious, which basically means they aren't aware that they experience the world as an insect. There's more and more research is actually surfacing that shows that insects are much more complex than we always thought, that they do respond to painful stimuli, and that it seems to be more than just a reflex response, but also that they uh, they communicate with each other, that they are, uh, well, cognitively advanced. And of course, there's many, many different insects, so it's very difficult to just uh, talk about one, one or the other, but especially in bees and hummingbees, uh, there's been a lot of research. You might be thinking, how do they test if a hummingbee or a bumblebee is intelligent and able to communicate? There's this researcher, Lars Chitka, who shows that they play, even if they don't get a reward. If you give them a tiny little ball, they will play with it and seem to just do that out of fun. But also, he, he made some really interesting test facilities where he had a little plate of nectar with a glass plate above it and a little uh, string attached to the nectar. And uh, the, the hummingbees could figure out pretty quickly that if they pulled that string, they could get to the nectar. But also hummingbees that were watching, so that hadn't actually tried it themselves, they straight away knew how to do it. But then it turned out that also other hummingbees in the colony later on, when they hadn't watched it, they knew straight away how to do it. So it seems like they're telling each other. Okay, so they're clever. But just how clever? And then an interesting other observation that he made was he cut the string at some point. Uh, so it wouldn't make sense to start pulling that string to get to the nectar. And hummingbees, when they flew over that glass plate and they saw that the, uh, the string had been cut, they didn't even try to pull on it anymore. So that does point to some form of reasoning. And it's something that we never thought was possible in hummingbees. So this challenges some of our notions of these creatures. 
They're very small, they look funny, and they perpetually fly towards the light, so they're pretty hard to identify with. But Bernice says what appears to us as strange behaviors can just be built into their DNA as a strong survival instinct. And so, and I think, yeah, more and more research is showing that there is more at least to insects than we always suspected. And also that means you have to wonder if you're going to rear insects for consumption, then you're going to keep them probably in very close rearing conditions. Um, it could turn out, and I think we should, we should be very careful. I think we do need to give them the benefit of the doubt because what if it turns out at some point we find out that they do experience pain and uh, you know that they have a lot of harm to welfare when we breed them? I think that's worse than if we at some point decide not to breed them and it turns out they don't feel pain. Then nothing is necessarily lost and there's no cost. Maybe there's no cost from an ethical perspective, as in no harm done to insects. But what if people started to eat insects instead of chickens, pigs, ducks, cattle, sheep, goats, and the rest? On the other hand, you could argue, well, uh, it's better from uh, environmental perspective to eat insects than to eat other animal protein. Here again, I think, well, yes, but it's still better to eat pulses or grains <laughs> or, or plant-based uh, matter. Then the argument is, well, but they can actually be reared on um, side streams of agriculture, leftover streams. And so that makes the system more circular. And that's also a reason why some people think it's better to eat them. Um, and that may, that may very well be the case. So you have to weigh up the, the pros and, and cons here. So the arguments to eat or to not eat insects really come down to your values and what you prioritize. Do you care about animal ethics and potentially doing no harm to conscious creatures? In which case, you may not want to see these systems in the world. On the other hand, insects could be a part of a more sustainable food system as a nutritious source of human food, of animal feed, and as an agricultural fertilizer. From Bernice Bovenkirk's point of view, she'd like us to pause before making such a decision to eat insects. So at the moment, I would say, well, we don't need it at least in the West, I think we don't need it. We, do, we need to do more research before we start uh, consuming insects. I think it's a different story in countries where often uh, insects are a standard part of the diet. They are often caught in the wild, for example. And I think that's much less problematic than starting to sort of create bio-industry factory farming of mini livestock again. It's worth pointing out that the research on sentience or consciousness of the insects people are likely to be consuming, like crickets, mealworms, and grasshoppers, that's not as well understood as, say, different types of bees. There's one more vision of insect farming that Bernice spoke about. But what if you would do it on the farm itself? Every farmer would have their own little insect-rearing setup. Well, it's probably a bit risky because they might escape and the biosecurity is probably not as, as high if you do it per individual farm. But I think that would be in a sense a, a better model than to do it on such a, a massive scale. Some insects could become pests or carriers of diseases if they escape the farm. So there's a higher biosecurity risk if you have lots of little insect farms spread out across a region. But on the other hand, a small insect operation could increase the resilience of a farm. For example, if you're a poultry farmer who imports soybeans and uses them as a feed for chickens, you could be growing these insects as feed on your own farm. But yet there again, I, d I don't think we, 
we need it because we don't need to eat those animals in the first place. We are working under non-ideal circumstances. And so then we need to also think about, well, if we're going to have these animal farming systems, what is the best way to do it? And in that respect, I think it is good to look for, you know, alternatives. If we're going to use insects, we have to make sure that we then keep them in facilities that don't harm their welfare. There are over 2,000 types of insects that people eat across the world. Some of these species have the potential to be scaled or to be cultivated using less land, less water, and fewer greenhouse gas emissions while supplying a nutritious protein source to many. But there are still some open questions. What does scaling this insect production look like, and will it actually live up to its environmental promise? And the crucial question, will people actually eat them? Are you going to join the insect revolution and replace some of the meat you eat with ground mealworms and cricket energy bars? Or maybe you're a vegan or a vegetarian who won't eat insects, but would like to see them on the menu instead of chickens and cows. Whether they play a big role in the future of protein consumption remains an open question. There's one final vision for insects that extends beyond our planet. Ulla Burstrom from Tabrito shared a vision of building an insect farm in space to help establish a Mars habitat. With uh, one kilo of mealworms or insects in general, you can actually start growing uh, a meat, meat farm, a protein farm, in the habitat in, on Mars so that you can have a really good and nutritious food produced in the future. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Meet the Four Futures. We appreciate any help spreading the word about the podcast, sharing it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, people who eat the same diet as you, and those who eat the opposite. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. A big thanks to the guests you heard in the episode. More information about their factories, research, and work can be found on our website, tabledebates.org slash meet. This format's funded project was initiated by the Future Food Platform at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, or SLU, and produced by Table, a collaboration between the University of Oxford, SLU, and Wageningen University. To follow our work covering global food system debates, you can subscribe to our newsletter, Fodder, and subscribe to my other food systems podcast called Feed, We'll provide links to both in the show notes. This episode was edited, written, and produced by me, Matthew Kessler, with help from Ilva Kalkwes-Farmborg, Tamsin Blackster, Jackie Turner, Ann Lewis, and Tara Garnett. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Again, thank you for following the series.